apology. Uh, if you came here to uh, listen to uh, an expiring feel-good Mother's Day message, uh, all you got to do is look at the screen and realize you've come to the wrong place. Uh, manipulative moms, foolish fathers, selfish sons, and the hope of the gospel. Uh, yeah, it's not not, not going to be uh, what you typically think of a, a Mother's Day uh, message. We are uh, back in our study of the uh, last uh, 25 chapters or so of the book of uh, Genesis, and uh, we don't plan these things uh, out this way, but they tend to, to happen this way. Uh, you know, months in advance, we kind of lay out the what, uh, just start dividing the, the chapters up, and you know, I don't ever think, you know, about Mother's Day or Father's Day or whatever. And then, lo and behold, we deal with this subject today. Uh, so uh, you need to understand, I love moms. Uh, I was born to a mom, uh, which is a good thing. Uh, she's nurtured me for the, she nurtured me for the first 21 years, made sure I stayed on the, the straight and narrow and, uh, and then she uh, got me married off, and, and then she decided that she would spend the next uh, 33 years uh, continuing to nurture me and keep me directed. And, uh, and then on top of that, I, I married uh, Kathy, who's a mom, and now I have two women trying to keep me in line, which uh, they do a, a really good job of that. So I, I appreciate uh, deeply moms, but uh, today we're going to... Uh, deal with, uh, with really families, because it's kind of what the passage is, is talking about today. And it, specifically, we're going to be dealing with dysfunctional families. And uh, the family that we're going to talk about today in, in God's Word is, is so dysfunctional that they could have been featured on a, a Jerry Springer show, is how messed up they are. Uh, basically, this family has uh, two grown twin sons. Uh, both are selfish uh, one of them is uh, just this cleverly conniving kind of guy. The other one is kind of insanely impulsive. And then you've got this, this foolish dad who just does not get it. I mean, as you, you're just like looking at this guy and you're like, you know, what planet are you from? And then, and then finally, uh, you've got this extremely manipulative mom, if, if any of you... Uh, know what a, a controlling Italian mother is like, uh, or a perhaps a control, controlling Latino mother, that might be, a, a, yeah, there's people shaking their heads up and down right now. Uh, this uh, lady that we're going to talk about would uh, make uh, that controlling Italian mom or Latino mom or, or African-American mom or whatever mom you're thinking of that's controlling uh, look like they're pretty passive, actually. And, and then you take in this mix uh, you got a couple daughter-in-laws here who have been uh, from the wrong side of the tracks, and so that creates a problem. And then on top of that, uh, this family is, is somewhat affluent, and you throw that into the mix, and it would definitely be something worthy of that former Jewish mayor of Cincinnati who turned into a, a tabloid television talk show host by the name of Jerry. So that's what we got to deal with today. Those are the cards that God has played for us. And uh, so if you have a Bible, we're going to go to Genesis 27. We're going to look at verses 41 and get into chapter uh, 28, uh, the first nine verses. So Genesis 27, 41. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles uh, around the room. Please feel free uh, to grab one of those. 
And if you are able to stand, if you would do so in honor of God's word, please. Genesis 27, starting in verse 41. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and she called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice, arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you've done to him. And then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? And Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite woman. Arise, go to Padan, Aram, to the house of Bethul, where your mother's father, uh, uh, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May He give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethul, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, and that he blessed him uh, and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and gone to Padan Aram. And so when Esau saw that the Canaanite woman did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives that he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's sister, the son, the sister of Nebaioth. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now, it's been a, a couple weeks since we have been in um, the book of Genesis, so I thought it'd be good to take just a, a little bit of time, uh, kind of a, a little bit of, of refresher. Uh, things all kind of started off by this man by the name of Abraham, who God chose to be the foundational father for our Christian faith. And God had promised Abraham that he would be a, a father of a great nation, and, and this was really a, a pretty big deal because Abraham's wife, Sarah, was barren. And ultimately, uh, Abraham and his, uh, had several children. Uh, let me remind you of the first two, because they're the, the two most important ones. Uh, the first is a fellow by the name of Ishmael, and uh, he was born to Sarah's servant by the name of Hagar. Basically, uh, Ishmael was the, the product of Abraham and Sarah's impatience. 
that God was not moving quick enough in their lives. Uh, Sarah thought, hey, we need to get a, a baby here one way or another. Uh, I've got this uh, female servant. She's young. Uh, she hopefully is going to be able to have a, a child. She uh, allows Abraham to have relations uh, with her servant, Hagar, and the product is Ishmael. And it's through the descendants of Ishmael uh, that the faith system of Islam traces its roots. Uh, now, there's a second son that's born, uh, the, the son of the promise, Isaac. He is the Actually, the child that God had promised that they were going to have, they just had to be patient enough. And ultimately, in her old age, Sarah becomes pregnant, and she has this son by the name of Isaac. And, and once she has Isaac, this whole idea of uh, having this uh, half-son, Ishmael, and uh, his mom, uh, Hagar, was a real problem for Sarah. So she tells Abraham, hey, you got to get rid of uh, you know this 14, 15-year-old kid and his mom, and Abraham, because uh, he doesn't really have a backbone, uh, at this point, he kicks them to the curb, throws them out into the wilderness, basically. And uh, God fortunately provides for uh, Hagar and, and Ishmael, and, and they end up, you know, their life continues on. Now, Isaac eventually grows up, and he marries a lady by the name of Rebekah. They have uh, twins uh, together, twin boys. The first one who comes out of the womb is a, a boy by the name of Esau. The second is a boy by the name of Jacob. And these two boys, they couldn't be any more different. Uh, Esau was uh, a hunter. He was bold and fearless, he, and he was loved by his father. And then, then Jacob, he was kind of more reserved. He's kind of a guy that likes to stay home, uh, hang out with, uh, with mom, and he was loved by his mother. And uh, where Esau is impulsive, Jacob is just kind of cunning and conniving and calculating. And because Esau was the, the, the firstborn, he was entitled to what was known as the birthright in that day. And basically, it was the favored position in the family, and, and uh, it would be this person who ultimately would lead the family once dad passed away. And on top of that, the bonus for being the firstborn was you get a double portion of uh, the inheritance. However, God had preordained that Jacob, rather than Esau, would uh, basically be the one who would possess the birthright. And so Jacob ensures that this is actually going to happen. So one day Jacob is cooking stew, and uh, he's obviously, you know, he's a good cook. He likes to be around the house and stuff like that. Esau had been out hunting. He's famished. He's tired. He's smelly. He's dirty. Walks into the house, uh, the aromas of a, a, a great meal is wafting through the air, and he's like, I'm famished, give me some food, Jacob. And Jacob says, hey, I'll feed you, but you need to give me your birthright. And, uh, you know, Esau's like, you know, what good is my birthright if I'm going to die from hunger, basically? And so he gives away his birthright for a bowl of soup, or stew, and in his impulsivity, he loses being uh the privileges of the firstborn. And if this isn't bad enough, as dad Isaac is nearing the end of his life, uh, the time now comes for Isaac to speak a, a blessing over all of his children. And, and normally the way that this works is that you bring all the kids in together, you take the firstborn son, the firstborn son gets a special blessing, all the rest of the kids get another blessing, but it all happens together. 
But uh, Isaac doesn't want to do it this way. I think, you know, perhaps Isaac wants to make Esau feel better because he kind of sold the birthright and stuff like that. So he wants to give him, like, the special blessing. So he makes plans to bring uh, Esau in by himself. Well, Rebecca finds out about this. And this is like a bad soap opera here, right? And Rebecca finds out about this thing. It's like, no, 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 this can't happen. So, you know, we're going we're gonna to dress you up, Jacob, and Isaac's eyes are failing. We're going to kind of make you look and smell like your brother, and we're going to convince your dad to bless you, even though he thinks he's blessing your brother. And so, uh, lo and behold, you know, they do this uh, imposter disguise kind of thing, and it actually works. And Isaac ends up blessing Jacob, thinking that he's blessing Esau. So Esau shows up, expecting the blessing. And Isaac's like, dude, who are you? And he's like, I'm Esau. And he's like, well, your, your brother must have came in and stole the blessing. And Esau's like, but you got to bless me with something. And so this is the blessing that Esau receives from dad. Check out what it says. And then Isaac, his father, answered and said to Esau, behold... Away from the fatness of the earth shall be your dwelling, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now, how's that for a blessing? He comes in looking for something you know, good to be told to him, and dad basically says, dude, I got to tell you, you're going to spend your life living in a bad place. That's what you got coming to you. And uh, you're going to have to fight for anything that you get in this world. And oh, by the way, you're going to serve your younger brother. And at some point, you're going to get tired of this. And you're going to grow restless of this. And, 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 and you're going you're gonna to confront your brother. And you're going to ultimately break uh, his yoke that has been placed on your neck. But the bottom line is, you know what? Life is going to be pretty hard for you. So what do we have so far? We got a mom and a dad who play favorites. You want to mess your family up, moms and dads, have a favorite kid. You will mess your family up. They already are thinking people are favorites, right? I mean, that's kind of the way that it works. But you actually treat them as favorites, you're going to have problems on your hands. You got an older son who is so short-sighted and so impulsive that he gives up his birthright because he's hungry. Uh, you've got a younger son who uses uh, manipulation and deception uh, to uh, place himself in a position of, of authority and, and, and position in the family. You have a mom who encourages the younger son in his manipulation to manipulate his dad and his brother. You, you have a dad who pretty much does the same thing to try to help his favorite son Basically, you got a messed up family. And some of you are probably sitting here and saying, you know, that kind of describes my family. I, I, I've, I've struggled with this. There's things that are going on, we say to ourselves, in, in our families that, that aren't right because some of our families have really serious issues. And some of our families, there's favoritism. And some of our families, there's manipulation, anger. Uh, violence, abuse, parental apathy or absence, 
messed up priorities, uh, unrealistic expectations, ingratitude, pride, jealousy, or one of a million other horrific behaviors. And when those things begin to flow inside of our families, it, it creates messes. And the, the Bible has a, a, a term for these types of behaviors. It calls them the works of the flesh. In Galatians 5, we read this. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, or fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The term, those who do such things, uh, means those who, who make these behaviors a pattern of their life. If these behaviors uh, define our lives, if, if these are the things that, that we do on a regular basis, if this is what we're known for, the Bible is telling us that our eternal destiny is ultimately in jeopardy. And if these behaviors threaten eternal souls, think about the damage that they do in our temporal lives. If these things are so bad that they're going to mess up our eternity, what are they going to do to our here and now? And if we don't do something about these sinful behaviors in our lives, if we don't deal with them, things get worse. And that's the reason, and it, that's the reason, uh, the, the reason that they get worse brings me to my first point, and it's this. Unaddressed sin will wreck your relationships. If you and I don't deal with the sin in our lives and with the sin of our family members, it will wreck our relationships. Clearly, Isaac and Rebecca and Esau and Jacob, they never dealt with their sin. And as a result, things get worse. And they get real worse real fast. Look at verse 41. Now, Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. In other words, my dad's getting ready to die. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. That, brothers and sisters, is hatred. My dad's about to die. And we're going to have to mourn for him. And while we're mourning for him, we might as well just mourn for my brother because I'm going to kill him. How messed up is that? A number of years ago, uh, a friend of mine that I made through uh, doing some, just doing some service work with Living Water in the local community, uh, he called me up kind of out of the blue. This is a, a guy, you know, he's a, he's a good acquaintance. I, you know, it'd be hard to call us like really close friends, but we're, we're friends. And uh, he called me up. Kathy and I were sitting on the back porch just in the spring, I guess, early summer or something. And uh, there was desperation in his voice. He said, Mike, you, you got to come to my house right now. And I'm like, what's up? He said, my son just killed my granddaughter who's 16 years old. 
in front of my daughter-in-law. And then he killed himself. That's what's going on here. That's the level. That's the, 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 the 21st century of what Esau is proposing. Dad's going to die, and in the midst of their grief, I'm going to wipe out my brother. That, that, that's what happens when we don't deal with the sin in our relationships. It just gets bigger and bigger and uglier and uglier. But the spiral doesn't stop there. Look at what happens next. Verses 42 and on. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. And so she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself. Look at that word, comforts himself. He finds comfort. He's consoling himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice, arise, Flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? So in an effort to protect Jacob, Rebekah decides that she needs to get him out of there. He needs to get away from his brother Esau. And she decides that he needs to get really far away from his brother Esau. So what she is proposing is, is that, that Jacob will leave the promised land. He will travel 500 miles north, not by airplane, not by train, not by car, probably not by camel or not by horse, but probably on foot, 500 miles until the southern part of what is now modern-day Turkey to be with her family until Esau's wrath is quelled. Now, in order to do this, she's got to figure out a way to convince Isaac, who's getting ready to die, to send his son uh, away before he actually dies. And so she comes to, to Isaac and rather than saying, hey, you know, Esau is about to rub out Jacob, she instead deceives him by playing on his fears that Jacob might marry a Hittite woman like the two Hittite women that Esau had already married a couple chapters earlier, which at the end of chapter 6, the Bible says that these Hittite women made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. You see, there's nothing like playing on your spouse's fears to manipulate them. That's the way to get your spouse to do the things that you want to. You play on your spouse's fears. And so that's what happens here. Rebekah doesn't come out and say, hey, Esau's going to kill Jacob and we need to figure this out. 
Instead, she, she does this, you know, incredibly manipulative thing. She says, man, you don't want Jacob. He's like in marrying mood right now. You don't want him to marry these Hittite women. So we just got to get him out of Dodge. And many of us have seen similar scenes playing out in our families. Rather than dealing with relational issues directly between family members, we just sweep them under the carpet. We pretend that they don't happen. We close a blind eye to it. There's sin flying all around in our households. Dad's doing bad things. Mom's doing bad things. Little sister Sally's doing bad things. You know, little brother Billy's doing bad things. You know, Aunt Gertrude's doing bad things or whatever. And we all just ignore them. We just pretend like they're not happening and it's all going to go away. That's what happens. We just pretend that they're not out there. Or if we don't ignore them, we try to manipulate the situation through deceit. We, we, don't, we don't, you know, something's going on with our kids and the wife doesn't tell the husband about it. Or the husband doesn't tell the wife about it. And then the husband finds out that the wife didn't tell him and the husband's furious because the wife didn't tell him. I mean, we know this is how it works in a lot of our relationships because we, we try to hide the sin. We try to cover up the sin. We don't want to deal with the sin. And we never ultimately deal with this real problem. Instead, we, we pile up sinful behavior on top of sinful behavior and expect that things are going to ultimately work out. And the process, it grows worse and worse and worse and more and more people get hurt. And Proverbs 14 tells us these things. It says, there is a way that seems right to a man, and in the end is the way of death. You see, when we do our things our own way rather than God's way, when we choose what is expedient over that which is godly, when, when we select what seems to be the comfortable wrong over the difficult right, when we see evil and avoid in fear rather than confront in courage, we allow sin to further wreck our relationships. You know, my, my son John, he's, he's 26 years old probably right now, and uh, he, he is, uh, he's a student of, of leadership. Uh, John is reading constantly. And uh, we, were, we were talking about some things that were going on in our family uh, uh, a couple months ago, and he says, you know what, Dad? You know, sometimes there are things, any option you have is just hard. There's like no good option. He says, you know what you need to do, Dad? You got to choose the better heart. And I, I thought that was brilliant. Choose the better heart. Don't try to ignore it. Don't try to get around it. Deal with the hard thing. I almost fell off the stage right there. <laughs> Deal with the hard thing, but choose the better of the hearts because it's always going to be hard. Rebecca didn't want to do that. She didn't want to deal with the hard thing. Now, here's what happens. Uh, look at the next couple verses. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite woman. See, he fell right into the trap that she laid. 
All right, he's he's what's he concerned about? Well, you're not concerned. I don't know. He doesn't know Jack that he's going to get the kid's going to get killed. He's just thinking. He's talking about marrying a, a a woman who I don't want to marry. He says, "Look, don't take away from the Canaanite women. Arise and go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God bless you." Uh, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away and he went to Padan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. So, So given his wife's encouragement, Isaac brings Jacob to himself, challenges him not to take a wife from the Canaanite people, not because they, they were a different ethnicity. It wasn't like, hey, you know, brown person, don't marry white person. It, it wasn't, you know, hey, you know, Hispanic daughter, don't marry Asian boy. Right? It wasn't about that. It was all about what people worshipped. It was all about the fact that these Canaanites were idol worshipers who rejected the true God of Abraham and Isaac. So Isaac sends Jacob away, just like Rebekah wanted. But this is what Rebekah didn't count on. She didn't count the cost. Because if you remember back what she said to herself and said to Jacob, you're going to go away for a little while. And then I'm going to bring you back. Well, here's the spoiler. By the time he comes back, years and years later, Rebecca's dead. The very thing that she didn't want to happen, she didn't want to lose her son, is the very thing that happened in her life because she wasn't willing to deal with the sin in her family. And so in fear, she goes with deceit, deceives her husband. Her husband sends her son away, and she never sees her son again. Isn't that amazing? She could have been straight with Isaac. She could have said, you know, honey, I I know you're dying, but we got a major problem here. Esau is planning on killing Jacob. Can we kind of work together here and figure this thing out? I mean, that's, that's the godly thing to do. That's the courageous thing to do. And they together could have confronted Esau. Or, you know what she could have done? She could have went to Esau and said, Esau, I get this. I get that you want to kill your brother because he's been manipulating you like crazy. And you know what? I'm guilty of helping with that manipulation. And I have sinned against you. And I am sorry. And I, have, I am asking you forgiveness. And I, I would beg that you would not carry this thing out. Those are the godly ways to handle those things. They're not the easy way to handle those things, but it is actually the godly way to handle those things. You go to the person and you say, you know what? I have sinned against you. 
and you name what your sin is. You name it. You don't say, I'm sorry that I made you feel bad, or I'm sorry that you thought what I was, did was wrong. You say, no, I did this. And I'm sorry. And it's never going to happen again. And I would humbly ask that you might forgive me. You use those words. I need to use those words. When we sin against somebody, that's how we make it right. We go to them and we spell out what we've done wrong. And you know what? They may not forgive us. And if they don't, that's on them. It's not on us. We go and we ask for forgiveness. She could have done that. That's not what she does. She keeps up her sinful ways, and in the end, she loses her son. You see, no doubt, unaddressed sin wrecks relationships. Now, there's a second truth that we discover uh, in this passage is in the next couple verses, starting in verse 6. Now, Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael, which is his uncle, and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, uh, Mahaloth, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. And what we learn from this, folks, is that partial repentance is insignificant or insufficient repentance. You see, while all this is going down, Esau becomes aware of what went down with Isaac and Jacob. He becomes aware of the blessing. He becomes aware of the fact that, that Jacob had been sent away by Isaac. He also hears Isaac tell Jacob, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Now, this would have been pretty convicting to Esau. Why? Because Esau has taken wives from the Canaanite women. The Hittites were actually part of, of the whole lineage of the Canaanite people. So here dad's telling Jacob, don't take Canaanite wives. And Esau's like, Man, I'm hitched to two of them. And all of a sudden, Esau begins to, to think to himself, oh my goodness, this was not good. And actually, the very fact that he married these Hittite women demonstrated that Esau didn't merit the birthright nor the blessing. He proved that he really wasn't even worthy of having these things. He's like this kid in your family who can never get anything right. Everything that he does is wrong. And that's what happens here. He loses his birthright because he's a fool. He gets tricked out of the blessing. He marries a couple of women that his parents don't approve of, but he's got a plan. He's like, I'll solve this. I'll go marry someone who's not a Canaanite. And in order to make sure that it works out, I'm actually going to go to my uncle, who is my kind of half, you know, these or uh, these, uh, you know, all these relations were really just kind of messy and stuff like that. He goes, I'm going to go marry, the, you know, basically uh, my, my dad's half-niece. I'm going to marry my uncle's daughter. And, and so he goes 
And he does just that. But here's the problem. It's only partial repentance. It's great that he marries his dad's half-niece. But the Hittite's wife had to go. And there's no indication that he ever even considered that. You see, Esau's looking for full restoration. But he's only given partial repentance. And the Apostle Paul speaks of this when he writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 7. He says, for even if I made you grieve with my letter. Paul had written a a letter uh, prior to this one that caused them great consternation. He says, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, not only for a while, as it is, I rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And here what what Paul is teaching us is there's a difference between true repentance and false repentance. True repentance is driven by godly grief. And godly grief comes when we aren't just sad about the consequences that we're experiencing. Because sometimes when we sin, there's consequences. And godly grief has nothing to do when we feel bad about the consequences. Nor uh, does godly grief have anything really to do with the pain that we've caused others because of our sin. And we should feel pain because we've caused caused others uh, injury because of our sin. But this is where godly grief ultimately comes from. Godly grief comes from when we finally realize That we haven't just sinned against ourselves, and we haven't just sinned against others, but we're ultimately sinning against God. That's what drives godly repentance. That is where things begin to change in our lives. Let me give you an example. Uh, Kathy and I are, uh, we have empty nest, okay? That's not a disease, it's a state of life, basically, all right? Yeah, we're empty nesters. We're actually not completely empty nesters because we brought someone new into our family uh, recently, uh, Victoria, who's our children's ministry director. Uh, She lives up in in Sealands Grove with her parents right now. She's working on getting an apartment down here in the next couple weeks, but she started uh, the first of the year, and uh, she serves on Wednesday nights and and every other Saturday night, basically, and it was kind of crazy for her to drive up to Sealands Grove, uh, and at night, and then have to drive right back here in the morning. So I'm like, hey, here's a key. We've got, a, you know, our downstairs is all fixed up. There's a couple bedrooms down there. And there's a bathroom down there. There's a little kitchen down there. Marcus is shaking his head because he was one of the Leonzo cellar dwellers years ago. This is like one of our children. I can actually, one of the funniest things, I got to tell you a funny story. This is a complete aside with Marcus. Uh, my, my, was it John? It was John, wasn't it? John was dating this, this young lady, and uh, she was over at the house. And uh, it was time for her to go home, and, and Marcus was there. And uh, so we're all kind of in our, like, living room, uh, foyer kind of thing going on there. That's a really fancy name, foyer, all right? And uh, so John basically says goodbye to her and, like, leaves her walk out the door. 
And we're all looking at John like, what are you thinking? And Marcus is like, brother, you got a problem. <laughs> you need to go out there right now. And then John like headed out there. They ended up breaking up a couple months later, but you know, I think uh, hopefully other women and John, well, hopefully the girl John's dating right now benefited from Marcus's astute wisdom. Uh, but uh, how did I get on that? So cellar dweller, Victoria's our cellar dweller right now. And so uh, at least two days out of, the, out of the week, we're typically not empty nesters, but the rest of the time, the other five days, we, we've got time on our hands at night, and, and when you've got time on your hands at night, you know, there's different ways to fill it up, but one of the ways that you can fill it up is with Netflix. And, and what I've discovered is that you can actually, there's like a term like binging on Netflix, and, and so that's what Kathy and I have been doing at times. Uh, we, we came across the, the, you know, there's all these series on Netflix that you never knew existed. You know, they've actually made them up, and... Uh, so we got kind of hooked into this one, one series. I'm not going to tell it to you because I don't want you to follow in our sin, all right? Uh, but it was TV 14. And so I thought, hey, that's, you know, ought to be reasonably tame. You know, it's for 14-year-olds. And so, you know, we've been watching this thing. and It's like really just kind of sucks you in with a plot. And like every episode like builds on the next. And like you can't wait to get to the next one. So we're like watching one. And then we're watching another one. And we're watching another one. And my bedtime is like 9 o'clock. And it's like 10.30 and we're still up. And, and so the other day, Cass like, you know, Mike, I'm really thinking we shouldn't be watching this thing. I'm like, What? Don't get all godly on me right now. <laughs> She's like, yeah, you know, there's some, there's some stuff. You know, although it's not showing anything, there's some stuff going on here. They're saying some things that we probably shouldn't be saying. And, and you know, and so I'm starting to think about this. And, and you know, I, but I'm not, I'm not going for it yet. And then eventually, you know, God just kind of speaks into my heart and says, you know, there's this verse in Philippians, I think it's Philippians 4, whatever is good, whatever is pure, whatever is right, you know, think about those things. Oh, thank you very much, Keith, very good. You, you should get up here, brother. <laughs> thank you, yeah, 4.8. And, uh, you know, God convicted my heart, like, you know, this is something that I shouldn't be doing. Now, I'm not up here telling you guys don't watch Netflix. I'm not up here saying don't go to movies. I mean, the Holy Spirit can convict however he needs to convict based on whatever. Making these blank statements is, is, is foolishness. But what I am telling you is this. It wasn't because Gat Kathy made me feel bad that we stopped it. It was because God spoke into my heart and said, Mike, you got to change this. You say you love me. Well, if you say you love me, you're supposed to obey me. And, and, and that's what we see here, that, 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 that real repentance changes things. There's this pastor by the name of Michael Lawrence. He puts it this way. Real repentance is a new worship. It looks like a changed life. 
But that changed life results from changed worship, not the other way around. In other words, I don't change my behaviors so I fall more in love with God. What happens is I fall more in love with God, I worship God more, and that is ultimately what changes my behaviors. He says, real repentance is being convicted by the Holy Spirit of the sinfulness of our sin, not the badness of our deeds. Many of us hold on to that. We hold on to the badness of our deeds. God says, you know what? You need to be concerned about the sinfulness of your sin. He says, real repentance means hating what we formerly loved and served, our idols, and turning away from them. Real repentance means turning to love God, whom we formerly hated, and serving him. It's the new, deepest loyalty of our hearts. That's real repentance. Here's false repentance. False repentance is we clean up one behavior in our life and we never deal with the rest of the stuff. We, we, we deal with one thing. That's what Esau does. He felt bad that it caused him to marry Isaac's niece, but he didn't feel bad enough that, that to get rid of the Hittite wife because it was a sin against the holy God. That was his problem. And that's tragically where many of us are. We want to obey God. We want to honor him. And then we take inventory of our lives. We cast off the things that are not of God. But there are some things that we want to hold on to. There's behaviors and beliefs, maybe possessions, that that bring us comfort, that give us a sense of safety, and that we fear that we can't live without. And like Esau, we embrace one area of obedience And then we hold on to two other areas of disobedience. But God isn't willing to share. He is not content with divided loyalties. God wants everything. And Jesus said that. In Matthew 16, Jesus says to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? You see, the Christian life, it's a series of repentances. Because we are in this process of becoming more and more like Jesus each and every day, but we will never be ultimately sinless until the day that we stand before the God of the universe. And until that day, we will constantly battle against sin. And the more that we fall in love with Jesus, the more we begin to realize the things that we thought weren't sin were actually sin. And so life becomes this series of just regularly repenting to God of our sin. That's what it looks like. And we need to be content with that. We need to understand it. And, And perhaps Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he puts it best. He says this, when Christ calls a man or a woman, he bids him or her come and die. Die to ourselves, die to our sin, live for God. Okay, last point. I'm going to wrap this up here. Uh, And this last point, it probably deserves far more time than I have right now because it's one of the greatest truths of Christianity. You see, you can hear all of these things that I just talked about, and you can start to like, man, I'm just one messed up dude, or my family's really messed up. 
my husband's messed up, or my wife's messed up, or my kids are messed up, or my boyfriend's messed up, or my girlfriend's messed up, or whatever. But know this truth. God chooses to use us despite our sin and brokenness. That's how he works. You see, what's amazing about Christianity and what makes Christianity different than any other faith system on the face of the planet is that God chooses to use sinful, broken, wounded, weak people. That's how he works. Throughout the Bible, if you look at the, the heroes and the heroines of the Bible, they all are racked with sin. The only one who isn't is Jesus. He's the only sinless one. But everybody else, everybody else who, who is in the, the hall of faith in Hebrews, they're all messed up people. Think about this. Abraham, the, the father of our faith, he tells the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, that his wife is his sister and she gets taken into Pharaoh's kingdom. That's bad. Isaac, he's passive. Now, some people are like, you know, what's the big deal with passive? Folks, I think a passive guy is the worst guy that you could possibly have. Passive men are, are horrific. They're terrible husbands. They're terrible boyfriends. Guys who just sit back and let the wife run the whole show and, and don't, don't engage in anything, who don't give a rip about anything, who nothing lights their fire and gets them excited. They're terrible spouses. Terrible. If you're fortunate enough right now to not be married, ladies, and, and you're dating a passive guy, today, kick him to the curb. Seriously. I'll help you. I'll give you my phone number. We'll do it together. We'll text. That was a joke. No, do it face to face. Seriously. You don't need a husband who's big and strong and mad. You just need someone who gives a rip, who's really serious about their faith, who will walk beside you and encourage you and help lead your family. I mean, that's, that's not Isaac. Isaac's passive. Jacob's a deceiver. Rahab's a prostitute. David's a murderer, Peter's a denier, Thomas is a doubter, Paul's a persecutor, yet, yet God, God seeks every one of them out. He says, you're mine, I'm going to use you, you're going to be in the lineage of Jesus, for, for, not for your glory, but for God's glory in every other faith system. It's men and women trying to earn their way into the pleasure of God, trying to make God happy with them. But that's not Christianity. In Christianity, God came to us in all of our muck and mire. Listen again to the beautiful words of Romans 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, he who also rejoiced in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation at just the right time. While we were still in sin, Jesus died. He wasn't looking for us to clean ourselves up in the beginning. He says, you know what? I love you enough that I am willing to die for you. And as he's on the cross, there are people sinning against him all the time. And you know what? We do the same thing. We, we, we sin and sin. I sin and sin. Yet Jesus draws and draws. It's amazing. Why people ridicule Christianity, I, I, I just, I can't possibly even understand. It's the most beautiful thing in the world when you finally get your head around it. That there is no way that you will ever earn your way to God. But you don't have to. Because Jesus already had. We don't have to be perfect because Jesus was perfect. But he does call us to be in process. And that's what he's looking for. He's looking for men and women who love his son, who hate their sin, who wake up every day and say, I can't do this without Jesus. That's what he's looking for. You don't got to stand up here on a stage. You don't got to work in our kids' ministry or, or you know, be in full-time Christian employment. Your work, your life is full-time Christian employment. Wherever you're at, whatever you're doing. And we need to wake up in the morning and say, yes, I'm going to live for Christ today. Because he died for me. So hopefully that gives us something to talk about at Mother's Day dinner today. So let me pray for you guys. Lord Jesus, thanks for this time. Thanks that I get this privilege to talk to these amazing people, that I get to share your word. And Lord, I recognize that my sin is great, but you are greater. And I pray for them, Lord. I pray for the, the men and women in this room, the boys and girls who have uh, received you in faith. Father, I thank you for that. And I pray that uh, as, as they uh, work through their salvation with fear and trembling, as they try to make sense of what you're calling them to do, and as I try to make sense of, of what you're calling me to do, that, that, that Lord God, that we would take our sins seriously. Lord, that we would be quick to recognize that, that, Lord, sin in our families that's not dealt with destroys them even. More sin in our relationships that's not dealt with destroys our relationship more too. And Father, that, that, that partial repentance is insignificant repentance. I pray that we would get that, Heavenly Father. Lord, I pray that we would have the courage to, to apologize to those who we've hurt 
And I pray, Heavenly Father, that we would have the courage to offer forgiveness to those who have hurt us. But most of all, Lord, we come before you right now and we thank you that you use the broken and the wounded for your kingdom. Lord, thank you for doing that for us. For those, Heavenly Father, in this room who have yet to come to faith, I pray, Heavenly Father, that they might have gotten a taste of how incredibly wonderful your Son is. I pray, Lord, that you would do in their lives as you have done in our lives to open our, li- our eyes up to our sin and that we would realize that it is not just a sin against ourselves and not a sin against others, but it is a sin against the holy God of the universe who is ultimately not only Savior but is also Judge. And, Lord, I pray that they would turn from their sin, they would cling to your Son, so that on the day that they stand before him in judgment, he can count them as one of his own. We love you, Father, and it's through your son's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.